If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Mark chapter 10. We continue in our study of the Gospel of Mark. And just a reminder, you know, the chapter divisions in the Bible are man-made. This, you know, Mark didn't say, okay, now I'm going to begin another chapter. But certainly here at chapter 10, verse number 1, we have a shift, beginning with the location. Up to this point, Jesus has been in Galilee. He's been in the northern part. Um, And so if you look at verse number 1, it says, Jesus then left that place, that's up in Galilee, and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Up to this point, he's been up north, and he's even gone into Gentile territory, and now he's come south uh, to Judea. Uh, Galilee was considered somewhat provincial, while Judea, that's where Jerusalem was, that's where the temple was, was considered, that was the real thing, that was the real deal. Um, Theologically speaking, it was the center, it's where the real theologians lived and had their arguments and disputations and all those types of things. We've seen this already in the Gospel of Mark, that even though Jesus has been in Galilee, Teachers of the law and Pharisees from Jerusalem have gone up north. They've heard about this guy, and they have gone up north to challenge him. So um, in chapter 3, verse 22, the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, uh, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. That was their conclusion. And then in chapter 7, verse 1, the Pharisees and some teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and said, uh, some, of these, some of his disciples eating bread with their uh, hands that were unclean, that is unwashed. So you have the experts going out into the provincial areas and basically examining Jesus and seeing him to come up short. Um, this may not be the best example, but we live on the West Coast and you have the East Coast and then people sort of look down their noses on what they call flyover country, that in between. Now, Galilee was flyover country uh, for the Jews of that time, and particularly for the teachers of the law. So now Jesus has gone down into Judea. We would expect that there, in fact, would be more confrontation because that's where the experts are. That's where the teachers of the law are. And our passage today deals with that first confrontation. Verse number two. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Um, this, the account of this, by the way, that's found in Matthew, which may in fact have been another conversation altogether, we're not sure, says, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Well, let's be clear about something. The Pharisees are asking Jesus a question, but in fact they are setting a trap. They are testing him. And does it strike you, of all the questions they could have asked Jesus, why this one? I mean, if, if Jesus were to appear to us today, what question would you ask him? Would you say, hey, what do you think about divorce? Um, they had heard that he had healed people. He had raised the dead. He had cast out demons. He was teaching Boy, there are a lot of things I think I could ask him about that. But in, in, instead, the Pharisees focus on this particular thing. And it's like, really? 
why this question? Well, there are at least three, three reasons. First of all, it is a political question. Stop and think a minute. The last time we were in Judea, there was a guy named John the Baptist. Remember? Preaching. And where is John now? He's dead. He had his head cut off. And why did that happen? Because uh, Herod and Herodias, his, then, his wife at that point, they had both divorced their spouses so that they could get married to each other. And John's like, that's not right. He ended up in prison, and then finally he ended up beheaded. So by asking Jesus this question, the Pharisees are, in a sense, trying to put him in a corner. So if he says, no, divorce is wrong, they're like, Herod, this guy's just like John the Baptist. So it's a very political question, and I think they want to trap him. But secondly, it's a theological question. The basis of divorce is found in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Um, and if you, if, you ever, if you get a chance to read that, well, I'll read the first four verses. There are only four verses that deal with it. They are not instructions about divorce as such, but what should happen if a man divorces his wife? He needs to give her a certificate so that she is protected. So this is what it says. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. Or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So, in essence, this passage is not instructions, this is what God thinks about divorce. It's like, okay, this is what happens. If a man divorces a woman, he gives her a, a bill of divorce, she marries somebody else, and either he divorces her or he dies, she can't then remarry her first husband. That's it. Okay? And yet it becomes the basis of a theology of divorce among the Pharisees. Um, there were two schools of thought about this expression, um, if he finds something indecent about her. Um, that's what the NIV has. The ESV has, he has found some indecency in her. That King James says he's found some uncleanness in her. What this was, was the subject of great debate. There were two main schools among the Pharisees, the conservative and the liberal, if you want to put it that way. The conservative school was led by Rabbi Shammai, who actually died during the ministry of Jesus. He lived from 50 BC to 30 AD. And he held that this referred to uh, no chastity or unchastity or adultery. Um, this is a view that not just the Pharisees, but a lot of Jews held as well. And you may remember that when Je Joseph found out that Mary was with child, we read, because he was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public dis disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. That is to say, from all human appearances, she had been with another man, that's why she was pregnant, and therefore they were, they were betrothed, they were engaged, but they were considered husband and wife, and he was just going to divorce her quietly. 
Okay. The liberal school, uh, which was actually an older school, uh, Hillel, and if you go to colleges or universities anywhere, you find a Hillel house. Um, he lived from 110 BC to 10 AD, 120 years, uh, a long life. And he said that anything indecent mean that she had not found favor in her husband's eyes. And so this means you could divorce for the flimsiest of reasons. So if she burned slightly his dinner, he could divorce her because he found something unpleasing in her. Um, if she spoke loudly to the neighbors so that she could be heard by others, he could divorce her. Okay. This trend continued into the second century AD by a rabbi named Akiva, who lived from 50 to 135 AD. Um, bit of information, he was a leading contributor to the Mishnah, which is the first collection of oral tradition among the Jews. And he said, if a man found another woman more attractive than his wife, he could divorce his wife because she was then unpleasing to him. Um, this view seems to have had some popularity among the Pharisees during that time. So it's a political question, it's a theological question, but it also becomes a social question. And Matthew's account of this, which follows verses 10, 11, and 12 in ours today, which we'll get to later, uh, when Jesus says that if anyone, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery, the disciples respond, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. As much as to say, listen, if we can't get easy divorce, we might as well not get married. Um, seeming to indicate that divorce was common and popular during that time. Um, How does Jesus answer this? They're trying to trap him. You know, politically, he'll be in trouble. Theologically, if he sides with Shammai versus Hillel. Socially, where people kind of like the idea of easy divorce. How does Jesus answer them? Well, Jesus does what we find him doing time and time again. Verse number three, he answers their question with a question. Look at verse number three. What did Moses command you? He replied. That is, the ball's in their court now. Okay, they asked the question, uh, they lobbed it, and Jesus lobs it back to them. He asked them a question, and they have to answer. Verse number four is their answer. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Here they're referring back to the passage I read from Deuteronomy 24, permitting a man to write a certificate of divorce. But do notice something. Let's not just gloss over it. They do not answer Jesus' question. Do they? Jesus asked them, what did Moses command you? And they respond, Moses permitted. Okay. Um, so they're not answering his question. But Jesus will deal with their answer first, and then he will give his answer. Verse number five, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. Okay. Moses did not command or encourage divorce, but allowed it and put strict controls on it. 
That is to say, you, one, you can't simply say, I divorce you. You had to write out a certificate. It had to be, I don't know if they, we call it notarized, but it had to be authorized by the proper authorities. It wasn't something that you could just do flimsily, if you wish. Uh, the reason that one had to do this was to protect women, vulnerable women, from exploitation. Because a man could say, I'm divorcing her because I found something indecent in her. Maybe yes, maybe no. But now she has a certificate as proof that her husband, in fact, has divorced her. Why did Moses do this? Why did Moses permit this, if you wish? It was because of the hardness of the heart of the people of Israel. Israel and Moses' day and the rest of the Old Testament were unable, Israel was unable to fulfill what God intended. If you are hard-hearted, you have the inability to have your heart in tune, in tracking with God's will and God's purposes. Israel was supposed to be a nation of priests, a holy nation. They were to be the prototype for the world. People who worship the true God, this is how they live. They have the Ten Commandments, they have other laws, this is how they live. And Israel failed time and time and time again. The problem is not the ideal of marriage and no divorce. The problem is not the law that Moses gave. The problem with the people of Israel. But let's back up again a bit. Jesus asked, what did Moses command you? And they respond, Moses permitted. Okay. Now we've, we've considered many times here the paradigm of, through which we are to look at reality. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. That is, how was it that God created the world and what, did, what was the world supposed to look like? The fall is now that it's, you know, it's messed up because of the sin of Adam and Eve and we see how it has fallen. And then we have redemption. Jesus comes in the world to redeem us and finally one day he will return and take us to be with him. The Pharisees did what many people today do. They don't begin at creation. They begin in the fall, with the fallen world. Okay. So we talked about this when we looked at Christians and politics, that most ideologies begin their narrative with sort of the equivalent of the fall. You might remember or the 1619 Project that supposedly when the first African slaves were brought to this country, that's when things went bad. But, well, wait a minute, that's the fall. What, what happened before that is often uh, ignored. When we looked at a Christian view of wealth, everyone seems to begin in the fallen world and not in the Garden of Eden. Okay. People fail to recognize that God had a plan and it's there in creation. So you need to go back to creation to see what God intended. So, the Pharisees and the false say, well, Moses permitted. Jesus asked, what did Moses command? Jesus and his opponents accepted that Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, Torah. We know it as the Pentateuch. And so, Moses writes down what God told him to write down. And in Genesis 2, is where Jesus begins. The Pharisees begin in Deuteronomy. That's, that's when Israel's in the wilderness. That's thousands of years after Adam and Eve. 
So as far as what, as Jesus was concerned, what Genesis 2 said about marriage is what God commanded. Moses wrote it down. It is what Moses commanded. So look, if you would, at verses 6 through 9. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, and there they were married, even though they were the only human beings alive. Who was the witness to this marriage? God was. Who was the presiding authority? God was. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. After Adam and Eve sinned and were cast out of the garden, there was still marriage. It's still part of a human life that people get married. It's not something that happened, oh, now that we're fallen, we have to get married. No, marriage was there in the Garden of Eden. So now humanity is broken, it's fallen. Who is the witness to the marriage or to any marriage? Well, there may be human witnesses. And certainly in this country, you have to have two signatures. Uh, when you get married, you have to have two witnesses. Okay. But God is the witness. He is the presiding authority. So the Pharisees want to begin with a fallen world and somehow sneak under the radar and allow easy divorce. And Jesus goes back to the very beginning, to the garden, and says, no. What God has brought together, let man not separate. Well, after Jesus was done talking with these people, they returned to the house where they were staying. And the disciples asked Jesus what this was all about. Look, if you would, at verses 10, 11, and 12. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. And here, I think Jesus addresses the real question. In some sense, the question is, is it okay to get divorced? I don't think that's the real question. The real question is, is it okay to get married again? Okay, I think that's what they're shooting at. Um, so Herod and Herodias, they divorce their spouses. Not ideal, not what God wants, but that's okay. But when they remarry, then they're committing adultery. And that's the issue. The Pharisees want to know, can I ditch my wife and marry somebody else? And Jesus basically, he says to his disciples, no, that's adultery. Okay? It's not acceptable. Okay? That is to say, if a divorce is for any other reason other than uncleanness or something un indecent, and here the example of Joseph and Mary again is instructive, um, then no, uh, they are not to divorce, they are not to remarry. Now, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul wrote about this, and Paul's situation was radically different from that of Jesus. He's writing to the Corinthian believers. Most of the people in that church are not Jewish, okay? They are Gentiles. They come out of a pagan background. So they have sort of pagan norms in the back of their mind. And 
they're in that transition period of going from being pagan to being Christian, and it affects every area of life. So this is in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verses 10 through 15. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. In other words, this is what Jesus said. A man must not, uh, I'm sorry, a wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. Okay? So based on what Jesus taught, um, divorce is not, it's not good. Okay? It's not ideal. It's not what God wants. However, if in fact a woman divorces her husband, she has two options. Either stay single, she cannot remarry, or be reconciled to her husband. Okay. And by the way, you'll notice that Paul starts with the wife before the husband. And we studied this in 1 Corinthians. It seems that women were uh, the source of many of the problems in the Corinthian church with regard to marriage and sexuality. And so Paul begins with them. Okay. But then he continues, verse 12, To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. It's interesting. You know, before it was the Lord who said this, but now this is what Paul is saying, that Jesus didn't speak about this. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. Jesus preached among the Jews. The Jews were all believers, if you wish. They all believed in Jehovah and Yahweh. Okay? They weren't pagans. Now, Paul has gone out into the world and he has preached the gospel, and pagans have been converted. Okay? But imagine a scenario, and this is what I think happened. You have um, families that come to hear Paul preach, and the husband says, this is the truth. I accept Jesus as my Savior. I am now a Christian. And the wife's like, I'm not. I'm, I'm not doing that. So what is the husband supposed to do? He's a believer. She's not a believer. Can they live together as husband and wife? And Paul says, absolutely. Absolutely. What if the wife is converted, but the husband is not? Can they live together? And Paul says, absolutely. On the other hand, if the unbeliever says, hey, I'm not living with you. You're into that Christian stuff, and I'm not. I don't accept it. Uh, I want a divorce. And Paul says, okay. You're not bound in those circumstances. Okay? Paul is dealing with a situation that Jesus did not face. That is, where you have one member of the couple who is a believer and the other one is not. Paul does say, say something really interesting here. And it ties in with what we're going to look at in a minute. You know, in the Old Testament, if you were clean, ritually clean, and you touched something that was unclean, you became unclean. Okay? In the modern world, if you sterilize a room and you bring something that is contagious or something, a bacteria, whatever, then the room is contaminated. Okay? 
So that, in essence, in the Old Testament, that which is unclean is stronger than that which is clean. Jesus comes into the world and reverses that completely. The leper says, if you want to, you can make me clean. And Jesus touches him and heals him. Well, in the Old Testament, Jesus would have been unclean because he touched someone who had leprosy. Or the woman who had the bleeding for 12 years. She touched Jesus. Then she's unclean because she has the issue of blood. Jesus should have been unclean, but instead she is healed. And Paul says, if you have a couple, and this is not, they got married, one was a believer and the other one wasn't. No. When they got married, they were both pagans, both unbelievers, and one is converted, the other one is not. Paul says that, in fact, that which is Christian may, in fact, sanctify that which is not Christian, which is really quite remarkable. It is, it means that the kingdom of heaven has come, that a dramatic shift has occurred. Here we come to the heart of the matter. When Jesus began to preach, what did he say? This is in Mark chapter 1. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God has come. Things are different. Things are radically different. And what Jesus does, but I don't think the Pharisees get it, he is offering them a way to not be hard-hearted, but to have God work in their hearts and make them soft-hearted, if you wish. Either that or he's just completely idealistic and unrealistic. It's like, Jesus, don't you know how life is? You know, what you're saying just isn't possible. But Jesus said the kingdom of God is here. We've gone from creation, fall, redemption. We're still fallen, but redemption has begun because Jesus has come into the world. I think this is the reason why Jesus answers them the way that he did. Because I'm tempted to think that there is a better way for Jesus to handle this. I'm wrong, obviously, but um, I was wondering, why didn't Jesus quote Malachi chapter 2 to them because that would have just that would have been the knockout punch another thing you do you flood the Lord's altar with tears you weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings and accepts them with pleasure from your hands and you ask why why isn't the Lord answering our prayers it is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth in other words God is not only Uh, the presiding authority, he is the witness as well. Because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring, so guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. I think if he had quoted Malachi 2.16, I hate divorce. Boy, wouldn't that have just knocked them out? But Jesus is going, he doesn't simply want to win the argument, which oftentimes we find ourselves sort of taking that approach. 
What he wants them to do is to see what God intended originally in creation. And because of the fall, their hearts are hard. And so Moses allowed the certificate of divorce. But now the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. Things are different. Things are radically different. We, as the people of God, as the church of God, are to be the prototype for society. We are to be the people as a congregation, series of congregations, who live out God's purpose in creation so that people say, oh, when God redeems the world, this is what it's going to look like. This is what it's going to look like. One writer, though, put it this way. In today's church, particularly in the West, anyone who reads verses 10 through 12 out loud is likely to be called cruel, unfeeling, unforgiving, exclusive, and a host of other names. So many people are bruised by the whole experience of marriage that to raise the topic, let alone take a strong line on it, seems, as they might say, unchristian. It seems that Jesus is being unnecessarily harsh. But remember, he's not challenging what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 24. He's going back to Genesis chapter 2. But the writer continues, the next paragraph reminds us of another dimension, and that is children. Just a side note before we get to verse 13. I've argued that the Gospel of Mark is not written chronologically, but that Mark put things together um, more thematically. And so, after Jesus speaks about divorce, I think the proper sequel is, in fact, to talk about the blessing of infants. That is, marriage is sacred, and from marriage come children, and children are to be treated gently and kindly. And this is what we find beginning in verse 13. Look at, look at it if you would. People were bringing little children, that is infants, to Jesus to have him touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. Okay. Again, we see uh, people thinking, and it might be fathers, mothers, uh, siblings, uh, relatives, who are bringing the infants to Jesus for him to touch them as though his touch has a magical quality. It's like the woman who had the issue of bleeding. If I can just touch the edge of his garment, then I will be healed. They were wrong, but so were the disciples. The disciples were like, yeah, this is not for kids. Okay, this is not for infants. This is not for babies. This is for the big people. Okay, this is for the adults. Jesus is here to speak to adults and not to be touching babies. Verse 14, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. This may surprise you, it did me. This is the only place in the Gospels where we are told that Jesus was indignant. The only place. He's not happy about this. What his disciples have done is wrong. He says, let the children, the little children, come to me. Do not hinder them. There's a positive command and a negative one. Don't hinder them. Let them come to me. Why? 
because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And what does this mean? Well, we saw this at the end of chapter 9. You know, when Jesus says that unless you become like a child, you can't enter the kingdom of God, what does that mean? People said, that, well, you, you need to have a sense of innocence, of wonder, all these different... No, 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 no. Two things. First of all, a child, particularly an infant, is in need of help. He or she cannot take care of themselves. Okay? They need adults, hopefully parents, to provide them with shelter, with instruction, with food, whatever it is they need as they grow up. A child needs help. Okay? And we had a quote several weeks ago about this, that you know, a child's having its diapers changed is a sign of grace. You know, that the child can't take care of itself. In the same way, if you think that, oh, I, I can somehow bring myself, I can somehow get myself to God. No, no, no. You need to be as a little child. And secondly, a child in the ancient world and in today's world as minors have no status or standing in society. They're minors. Okay, they have not reached their majority. Uh, Paul wrote to the Galatians, what I am saying is as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave. So you can imagine a wealthy couple, moderately wealthy couple, um, they have a child who's still a minor. Let's say he's 10 years old. And tragically, they are killed. So he is the heir. Everything's going to him. But until he reaches his majority, he's a minor, his status is the same as that of a slave. So if we come to Christ, we can't say, yes, I'm a wonderful person, look at me, I'm a good person. No. You have no legal standing. You have no right at all to come to God and say, do what I ask. We are in need of grace. We have no status on our own. So a child is the best example of how we are to view ourselves. You look at a baby or an infant, a, you know, a child learning how to walk, a child needing to be fed. This is the best example of how we are to view ourselves in need of God's grace. If you do not accept the gospel as a child in need of grace and without standing, and you will never enter the kingdom of God. And then wonderfully, he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them and blessed them. It's, it's not a magical touch. There's a tenderness here that is quite amazing. He takes them in his arms and he puts his hands on them and he blesses them. That is, he says something. Okay. A blessing requires speech. We see this, we've seen this whenever Jesus heals. He wants a conversation. He doesn't just sort of magic wand and heal people. He wants to talk to them. That's why the woman who tried to be healed on the sly, and Jesus won't tolerate it. It's like, who touched me? And they're like, are you kidding? Surrounded by people. Jesus wanted her to understand what had happened. While the Pharisees in this passage tried to trap Jesus by asking him about divorce, again, of all the questions you could ask Jesus, why this one? They're trying to trap him. 
But Jesus was able to point to creation. This is what God's plan was all along. And that's where the conversation should begin. Okay? Not with a broken world. And he did something else. He, he emphasized, he reinforced the centrality of the family. You'll notice in this passage and what we've seen previously, he honored the marriage bond. It's a divine institution. What did Moses command you? Okay, and goes back to Genesis 2. But secondly, he does something else which is quite remarkable. He gives equal standing before God of the husband and the wife. Now, it might seem to be in a negative way that if she remarries... Um, she's committing adultery. If he remarries, he's committing adultery. But he puts them on the same level. Okay? It's not like husband's up here and wife's down here. Okay. He also re-emphasized the divine order when he said that children should honor their parents. And this we saw where the, the Pharisees had worked out a system where, you know, when you got your inheritance, you're supposed to take care of your parents. But if you said, well, no, actually, I've... I've dedicated this to God. It's korban, the word in Aramaic. Uh, therefore, you, you could neglect your parents. And Jesus says, no. You are to honor your father and your mother. And then here at the end of our passage, he loved the little ones. He takes them in his arms and he blesses them. The disciples, perhaps even us, if we're thinking in terms of efficiency, yeah, this is not a good use of the master's time. He needs to be teaching, okay, healing, casting out demons, whatever. But uh, blessing children, infants, that, that's uh, inefficient, an inefficient use of his time. And Jesus will have none of it. Because it is in the children, in the infants, in the babies that we see, this is what I need to be like to come to the kingdom of God, to be a part of the kingdom of God. By the way, even after God saves us, we are still always, always in need of grace. But now we do have some standing. Now we are the children of God. The Lord Jesus has brought us into his family by his grace. Let's pray together. Our Father, so often we are like the Pharisees where we have questions that in the scheme of things uh, shouldn't be the questions we're asking. We seem to be fascinated by trivia, by finer points of things, rather than recognizing what is fundamental, what is basic, and what is true. I thank you for the Lord Jesus that he doesn't seek to win the argument but rather to instruct his opponents to point out that their hearts are hard but the kingdom of God has come. By God's grace their hearts can be softened. May we as we speak to others about the truth not seek to win the argument, but to provide that which would cause people to think. 
in our own thinking, may we begin with your plan in creation and then recognize how it's been messed up by sin. Finally, recognizing how Jesus has come into the world to make all things right. I thank you that in our brokenness, you loved us. And while we remain broken, you still love us. And we look forward to the time when Jesus returns and we will be made whole. But in the meantime, may we be obedient. By your grace, may we be faithful. We thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace. And now as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. And as we walk through the world in this coming week, may we have a sense of your presence. You've not abandoned us. We're not on our own. We're like babies, like infants. We need you every moment of every day. All this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.